Get ready to be dazed and infused. Join sugar industry expert Latham Woodward for a happier hour each week for a lively and often hilarious discussion on the infusion of cannabis into food, beverages, and life. Explore exciting new culinary landscape trends with fascinating friends and guests who are leading the industry into the uncharted mainstream. Discover curated menus, enhanced cocktails, and live tastings. Life's a little sweeter here on Dazed and Infused. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another great episode of Days and Infused. Tonight, we're privileged to have, especially on 420, Alia Voles, author of Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of SF, or San Francisco, as we natives like to call it. Welcome to the show, Alia. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Um, I started out um, saying I'm a native San Franciscan. You're a native San Franciscan. Uh, we're rarities. We are unicorns in this universe. Um, so that's a major plus in my book. So welcome to the show for that alone. Um, my typical question that I start all shows with is not, I don't want you to answer it because I want people to read your book. And that is, what's your historical relationship to cannabis? But that's your book. And for <laughs> The people at home listening to this interview, um, Alia's book is pretty amazing. It's a short read, but it's a great read, and it puts a lot of things in historical context. Alia is a little younger than me by, I won't say how many years, but a, a, a couple of years. And um, the things you captured, Alia, in the book are really cool, and you did it in abbreviated form, so thanks for that. Um, you have any comments on just what motivated you for that kind of form? Well, first of all, thank you so much um, for everything you just said. I, I'll take all the compliments I can get. I appreciate it. Uh, so I grew up in this very unique world, which was obviously going to be fodder for uh, or potential fodder for a memoir. But what really drove me to bring this book to light was in the lead up to uh, the 2016 ele election when it was clear that California was going to legalize adult recreational use of cannabis. Yep. I noticed that people were no longer talking about the role of HIV AIDS activists and that, that really heartfelt and passionate uh, life-saving movement yeah. had kind of fallen out of the conversation and it felt like a form of erasure and having grown up embedded in that world, which was in, in a lot of ways being erased and ignored even as it was happening, I felt like there was a debt of remembrance. And I knew that I had a piece of this story and the historical perspective to bring it out and make it part of the conversation again. Great answer, because that's exactly what your book does. Um, it puts a timestamp on that era in San Francisco, not just because of your mother, Meredy, um, I hopefully pronounced her name correctly. That was perfect. Um, and it, it's, it's more about um, this weird time. Now, I'm going to go back a little and just say, because I grew up in San Francisco, in Marin County and the East Bay, because my parents divorced and, you know, I was, me and my brother were cast around. Um, I, I don't have... I'm 57. I'm about to be 57. I don't have the fond memories of the hippies. 
I don't have the fond memories of the good times in this. I have a very different take and I've, I've talked to other people in my age group about this. I remember the late sixties as being um, a grubby and dirty time. Mm -hmm. And um, it was not always fun. And there was a lot of people from a lot of different places in the United States that were here for a lot of the wrong reasons. Yeah. And they polluted the well, so to speak, because it wasn't that nice to have a lot of these people around. They, these reasons they came here were not altruistic. They thought they were, but they mm -hmm. weren't. And it was just this weird time. And that morphed into the 70s. And I, I, I like I've heard you talk about the very traumatic times of Harvey Milk and um, Moscone being assassinated, mm -hmm. um, which I lived in high school. I remember the, the moment. I remember where I was. I remember everything about that shock. And, mm -hmm. and it's one Jonestown. of those historical yeah. moments for sure. Oh, it's horrifying in Never forget retrospect. Where you are. Mm -hmm. No. Um, and then, you know, Jonestown and all this stuff, but mm -hmm. it really, to me, it culminated with um, what I kind of think is the death of the good times in San Francisco, and that is the AIDS epidemic. Mm -hmm. I would I would agree with that absolutely. Actually, everything you just said. Um, the summer of love, as I'm quite sure you're aware, and many of your listeners probably are as well, was a media construct from the beginning. Anyone yeah. who was here for it, who was here before it, will say that the real summer of love was a year or two before everybody showed up. And yeah. then um, I believe it was Time Life magazine did their famous spread and 100,000 plus kids came out from all over the country trying to be a part of something that really didn't exist. It wasn't what it looked like in the pictures. But once all these people got here, uh, and it got pretty dark. I mean, there were there were overdoses, people went missing, there were some murders, it got really intense, oh, and it yeah. got pretty dark. But once everyone was here, you had all these, you had all these people who had uprooted themselves from their from their lives to make something new. And they were determined to do that anyway. And then we had the 70s. It was kind of like this, there were all of these social experiments that grew out of the ethos of building something new. Well, what happens when you experiment? Occasionally things work, most yeah. of the time they don't. You yeah. get explosions in the chem lab. Um, there was and, no time for R&D. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it, but it was a really fascinating time. And I, I, I feel like the 70s were a, a lot more interesting than the 60s in a way. And they get oh, yeah. overlooked because the sociopolitical movements were on fire. The arts movements were really happening. And there was all this, uh, there were all these experiments and different ways of living and all this seeking. Some of which like the ultimate example is, is the People's Temple went terribly, terribly awry and nearly a thousand people died. Um, people my, my parents knew were there. Yeah. I mean, right? it affected everyone it did. In, the, in the community at that time. It was very, um, no one expected that. Yeah. Nobody did. I mean, and then, you know, you still got um, our senator, uh, not Pelosi, but um, our congresswoman. Jackie who, who Spear. Jackie Spears, she was a survivor mm -hmm. of that. Yep. The investigative, you know, journey down there and um, really weird. And then, of course, we had the Black Panther movement in the East Bay, of course. And then we had mm -hmm. uh, the Weather Underground, all that stuff happening at the same time. And then we had um, so many other things happening. That's why, in, you know, Summer of Love, that was 1966, right? 67, maybe. 
67 was official and that's it's only official because some ham-fisted journalist at at life magazine called it the summer of love (laughs) it was really a lot of grubby kids who had no place to sleep that was right. a, <laughs> um, but, but they came out here and they built some really interesting things. And we're talking about some of the more dark angles, but there was also Theodore Artaud, the world, there was a lot of experimentation in, in drag and gender. And you had a lot of, um, there was so much creativity. People felt really limitless. Yeah. And, don't, for, don't forget uh, Alvin Ailey, Dance Company too. Yeah. That was something that came out of society in San Francisco, you know? And I've heard you mention too, like, Robin Williams down on Fisherman's mm-hmm. Wharf. I remember going to see the man in the box, you know, and all the other crazy crap that was going <laughs> on at that time. And the that human jukebox. Really, yeah, human <laughs> jukebox, exactly. And yeah. it was it was a cool time. And mm-hmm. I think your mom, Meredy, and Sticky Fingers Brownie, which is the sign behind you there. I, I, I like that. This is a great art. It reminds me of the Church of the Subgenius, that art, by the way. Mm-hmm. And it looks really cool. Um, but by contributing in her underground fashion and providing brownies to the community and giving this really interesting new thing that Mm -hmm. was part of the web of what was happening creating the 70s san francisco when it was really interesting and changing yeah, it really was, and the, the the business have evolved in such an organic way. As as you were touching on, um, Sticky Fingers started as a little mobile bakery down on Fisherman's Wharf, and my mom and her friends were not selling to tourists ever, but peddling to the craftspeople and the street performers, and uh, who were working. Um, and on a day's work, they couldn't go off and and risk being seen smoking a joint, very frowned right. upon in those days, quite illegal. Definitely. But they could sneak an edible. And so it started there, but very quickly it spread throughout the city so that by 1977, late 77, when I was born, a year into the process, they were distributing more than 10,000 brownies a month. And it was into, it was to the, to the punk scene, to the, the, the gay liberation scene, which was explosive in the Castro and on Polk and, and the leather scene starting down in Soma. Um, and even to, um, even to office buildings downtown and the, the remnants of the beat scene in North Beach, it was really all over the city. And it became this kind of network that drew people together in a way. Um, and, and part of that also, you mentioned the artwork, my folks used the packaging for the brownies as a sort of an underground comic. And they would yeah. do this elaborate art where both of my parents are artists and they would design these elaborate uh, bags. Every week they were different. That would be some sort of social commentary. And that would be disseminated throughout the city. And all the while, nobody knew where they where the brownies came from. Nobody, you know, people wouldn't come to the warehouse where we lived to buy. They went out and had these delivery routes, always selling to people on the job. So it's really kind of an ingenious business model that thrived symbiotically with the mood of what was going on in those days uh, prior to HIV/AIDS and before the assassinations of Milk and Moscone and before the the tragedy at Jonestown, 
it was a very exuberant time. It was, there was a period in the late seventies where it was all about expansion and being high and having fun and being creative. Uh, but then it, as uh, when the AIDS crisis hit and everything sort of happened at once at the end of the seventies, it all kind of yeah. came crashing down and the business really evolved with that. Let's go to uh, just, I want to come back to the AIDS thing because I have a very personal relationship with that. Mm-hmm. Um, just a, a more kind of a fun question though. Um, do old clients ever reach out to you? Oh yeah. Of your mom? Uh, does it happen like <laughs> weekly or daily or that's kind of cool. Well, now that the book is out, of course, I hear from people more often. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and it, it's funny, I have, in fact, I've heard from people that I was looking for because during the research, I was hunting for people who could reveal pieces of the story or introduce right. me to other clients. And there were times when it was hard to make the connections I needed to make to explore a particular subculture that I wanted to include in the book. And, and as soon as the book came out, they started coming out of the woodwork. It's, and I was like, where were you six months ago? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, back, back when I was a kid, my dad ran um, a company in Berkeley called Sierra Designs, you know, famous outdoor retailer, and uh, uh-huh. he ran it for many years. And we used to, he it was a very tight crowd back then. It was uh, Sierra Designs, the North Face, Kelty Packs, um, Esprit de Corps, which became Esprit, and yes. the North Face, right? I don't know if I already said that, but, um, and we used to go to these great parties when I was a kid. And I know your mom's brownies were at these crazy, crazy parties. I know. Sure. <laughs> for a fact, because they are all connected. And the Esprit de Corps people, which is Doug, Com- Doug and Susie Tompkins now, but it's, Esprit doesn't exist in the United States, it does overseas. But mm. they would have these crazy ass Christmas parties where they would take the children and put them in trampoline rooms and stuff. And the parents, they had minders so the parents could go party. It was mm-hmm. crazy off the hook time. It was really fun. I mean, mm-hmm. that's San Francisco back in 1974, you know, 72. It was really interesting. It was frothy. Fun. Frothy, exactly. <laughs> it, was the, it was the straights, the squares, and then the everyone else, you know, and there was a lot of the everyone else in the city, yeah. that's for sure. And it made for something. It made for a great foundation. But um, we will get back to this subject, the AIDS crisis. And um, my personal story is I had a business partner, Tim Cherry. I'll say his name. Um, Makes me a little emotional. Um, He died of AIDS um, in my partner's, uh, my other business partner's arms. Um, And the wasting and the feeling of uh, helplessness was overwhelming. It was uh, something I don't wish on anyone. And I remember the good uh, care that Hospice San Francisco gave Tim at the end and um, how no one cared. No one cared. Their family didn't care. And it was just like, oh, you know, you're going to die, you know, and I'm just going to use a pejorative here. When I talked to... um, Tim's family in Chicago, they said, that guy's a faggot. He's going to die. This is God's will. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you are a cruel, horrible human being. Mm-hmm. And that darkness, that pallor that came over the city and watching your friends, my friends, people we knew die and young people die. The best was, and the brightest. It, it, oh, 
it, it was crazy. It had this this way of, I mean, San Francisco. This happened really through the seventies that San Francisco became an international mecca for people who wanted to come out of the closet yeah. and live freely. It, it's it's I think a little hard for younger generations to um, to to really process how hard it was for people to be on the LGBTQ plus spectrum openly before this transition that happened in the 70s. And the, the movement really, well, San Francisco was definitely the West Coast um, epicenter and one of the world epicenters for the LGBTQ plus movement, uh, particularly because Harvey Milk became such an iconic figure and uh, he had a he had a real knack for drawing people out and drawing them together and getting them out in the streets, whether or not they thought they were political. He had a he had a wonderful, wonderful um, talent for making people believe in political in the political movement. So it was really happening here. And yeah, it, 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 was, was. it was a huge, huge portion of the population at the time. And um and these are also extremely creative people. And so you had such a vibrant. Uh, political, artistic, creative group of folks, by and large, very young. And this happened to be the population that HIV AIDS sunk its hooks into first. And in the early days, um, the establishment was not um, willing to acknowledge that HIV AIDS was a virus that could affect anybody. And so there was a blame the victim type of scenario where it was uh, framed. And this is, I, I'm talking about from the top down. This is, oh, yeah. um, it was a very, it was a conservative Christian regime at the time, um, conservative Christian administration and people like Jerry Falwell had President Reagan's ear. And, and don't forget um, uh, the orange juice lady. Back in Florida. Oh, Anita Bryant. Anita well, that, Bryant. I mean, that was that was the '70s. That was pre-AIDS. But um, there was already <laughs> this this narrative uh, that AIDS was God's retribution for miscreant behavior, and, and, and that was said. And they said that too. Oh, it's not like flatly. it wasn't implied. They said it. No, it was it was very. Um, I'd, 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 I'd hate to misquote Mr. Falwell, but he said something. Oh, go ahead. Uh, go something, ahead. <laughs> <laughs> something very much to the effect of, oh, the poor homosexuals, they've committed crimes against nature and now nature is exacting an awful revenge. It's very close to the actual quote. But, um, and, he, and he had President Reagan's ear. So yeah. HIV AIDS began killing people in 1981. President Reagan did not give a speech on it until 1987. And there was not an effective pharmaceutical response until late 1995, early 1996. So that's yeah. 15 years that this virus and the accompanying diseases were just wiping people out and they were terrible deaths and uh they, young they were. People. oh it was just awful and there was nothing there was nothing to do about it so what what but what happened that i i really like to come back to this uh, especially in the times that we're living in now what happened that was really inspiring was that the local community here in san francisco and the broader lgbtq plus community and allies really came together to take care of their own when the government turned its back. And there are lessons for us 
now as, as we deal with another pandemic. And it's, it you cannot know? be forgotten, um, but the, the lesbian community stepped up for their gay brothers. Absolutely. It was uh, pretty amazing, actually, pretty amazing. Um, before we merge into a happier subject, I want to, I don't know if you know what we, what I do as a business, I'm in the cannabis business as well. We make a product called Shuggies and we make a home baker bag. And you know what I engineered the home baker bag for? Hmm. To put in brownie mixes that you buy at the store, eight ounces of sugar with a hundred milligrams of THC. So super easy to use and you can buy it at a dispensary near you. And, you know, that's one of those little things that makes cannabis, you know, accessible. And, and that's the beauty of today. And there's almost too many products on the market. You know, there's just, mm -hmm. there's stuff out there. So if you are in a dispensary, look for Shuggies. I appreciate it. Um, a really cool, happy coincidence in my research on you came up. And although I'm from San Francisco and Marin County, I live in Marin County now. I spend most of my childhood in Bighorn, Wyoming in the summers, oh. Oh. which is, 40 miles from the U-Cross Foundation in U-Cross, yes. Wyoming, where you were got a fellowship and I, you must have spent at least a summer there. Um, it's an amazing place with an amazing program. Oh, it was fabulous. And, and I, I had a wonderful month-long residency in spring of, I believe it was 2019. Mm -hmm. And I was in one of the later drafts of this book. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, you, you, the, you, the folks at UCross are just tremendous. It's such a beautiful place. It is. To isolate and work. It was really, uh, really productive time for me. Very close to um, the beautiful Lake de Smet. You can go out hmm. there and swim on the rocks out there in the middle of uh, northern Wyoming. So if you do get a chance, go out to um, Sheridan, Wyoming. It's pretty close. It's also close to um, Buffalo, um, which has one of the most amazing pools available to humanity. And one of the most amazing bars. Yes. Well, there's a couple of those in that area. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Which one did you like? I'm blanking on the name, the old hotel. Yes. Um, oh. uh, I'll, I'll remember it. it. It'll come up. But that and the mint bar in, in oh Sheridan. Yes. It's and right on the main drag. It's, it's, it overlooks the little river there. I've been there a million times. It's, it's, a, it's a great place. And if, if people at home have never been to Wyoming, Get up there. It's a neat place. There's a whole nother world out there that's totally different from here in California or other states. So experience it. I highly endorse it. And I think you do too. Holly. I second that. <laughs> there you go. Um, let, how does it feel to you to be the author? This is how I feel about your book. How does it feel to be the author of a, of a historical placeholder? Like that it's an autobiography, but it's more than that. It's a, it's a time piece where it plugs in and it connects eras. How does that feel to you? It's kind of cool. Thank you very much. I, uh, it feels like I maybe accomplished what I set out to do. I am something of a reluctant memoirist um, okay. in that I was never all that interested in the more navel gazing aspect of memoir writing. I, I do it at times and it fascinates me at times, but it's not my primary motivator. I'm really interested in cultural history. And so I wanted to write about the San Francisco that, that I knew and loved and that 
is, is largely gone. There are a few people left from that era, but the city has of course changed dramatically. And because of the nature of the underground, um, there weren't a lot of records being kept, of course, because records could send you to jail. Uh, and you didn't want it chronicled. And these movements to begin with, even the artistic movements, even when they weren't illegal, were underground organic movements. They were about being in the moment and creating something new. So a lot of that history is getting lost as the people who lived it died. And we lost a lot of history when the AIDS generation died, of course. Yeah. Um, and there's no getting that back, you know? So there was a time, um, I actually started recording the interviews for this book way back in 2006, because I realized uh, I come from obviously a family of storytellers and I grew up hearing a lot of, grew up hearing these fabulous stories from my mom and her friends. Um, and, and I realized that as people were aging and, um, and, and we were starting to lose them, that the stories were dying with them. And so I began to record, not even entirely sure what I was doing with it. And I became rather obsessed with this period in Francisco history and wanting to see it from a cultural perspective because the movements were so fascinating to me. So the memoir aspect of it, the audio autobiography, I think of as kind of a Trojan horse. I'm wanting to smuggle yeah. the cultural history into your brain in a way that feels like an adventure. And that's- I think you accomplished that. And it's also oh, the narrative is good, meaning it reads well. And, and that's not always the case with a lot of um, autobiographical works or historical biographies. They just, it's more um, antiseptic, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This, you have a personal nature in the writing. So I, it totally comes across and um, I, I dig that. It says, it's like, um, not only is it a San Francisco piece, it's a cannabis piece. And mm -hmm. of course, this show is based around cannabis, right? And that that makes it super interesting as that little historical footnote of the life of cannabis and how we came to this stage. Mm -hmm. And to back up a little, I think it's important for your book to put this time stamp on things because tech rewrote San Francisco. Yeah. And I can't say it rewrote it in a good way. I, in fact, I think it's kind of a horrible way. In yeah. fact, I think it um, the money destroyed San Francisco. And there's always been a lot of money in San Francisco. That's not the issue. I mean, there's always railroads and there was always gold and there was always something, right? But tech money's different. Mm -hmm. And using the word antiseptic again, I think that's exactly the word I would use for it. It's just, there's no soul mm -hmm. in that money. It doesn't like... Um, you know, you've got like a philanthropist in this in the San Francisco area. I mean, sure. I mean, you've got Zuckerberg and doing the SF General and all this other stuff. But is that about his putting his name on a hospital or is that about the good? I don't I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's a side of tech that is very creative. And San Francisco has this this character that seems to persevere over time of mm -hmm. being the epicenter of enormous uh, world-changing movements. And somehow they happen in this weird little city hanging out on the edge of a peninsula 
and yeah. always threatening to just fall in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the next, the next uh, twitch of the San Andreas, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but some somehow it's this it's an incredibly fertile place. So we had the, the gold rush, and, and then of course the, and the and the summer of love and uh, the LGBTQ liberation movement being so strong here. And each time something like this happens, hundreds of thousands of people come all at once. And they displace whatever was there before. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so I think it's also important to keep in mind when looking at these cycles that the hippie generation displaced people. They displaced African-American families had been living in the hate for generations and were displaced by these unruly uh, white teenagers who dropped out of their lives and decided to turn up and party. And uh, the, you know the gay liberation crowd moved into the Castro, which had been a blue collar uh, European immigrant community for generations. Yeah. Um, so the techies come out and they're displacing what was here before. Uh, I'm angry about it. You're angry about it. We're all frustrated. In my more magnanimous moments, I take a step back and look at the broader picture. And it's another gold rush. It's it's another, another giant. Yeah, I mean, in 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 my more optimistic moments, I think of it as part of the natural cycle of this place. I mm -hmm. don't like this particular cycle, but um, a lot of people didn't like the hippies either, and a oh, lot yeah. of people didn't like the gay lib crowd. So that's true. Um, you know, this is kind of what we do in San Francisco. Yeah. I didn't know. Do you still live in San Francisco? I do. Oh, well, good for you. I moved out finally. I, I was back in my old neighborhood in the Richmond a, a little while back, a week or two ago. And nice to see it's still the real Chinatown in San Francisco is along, along with Russians. Or, and it's That's a, where you know. I live, in fact. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I'm in Six, the inner Richmond. 16th um, and Balboa. That's my old hood. Okay. There you go. Um, you know, um, do you, do you still partake in cannabis or is it, have you had enough in your life just because you were inundated when you were a kid? You know, I'm sort of a lightweight, uh, which is funny because I've become this kind of spokesperson for cannabis through this book, but, um, I don't use it a lot myself. Mm -hmm. I believe very strongly in access and I believe very strongly, um, in decriminalization and, very strongly in the the importance of people who've paid the price for the drug war, especially black and brown people who have been incarcerated. For Absolutely. It, that they their, their records be expunged and that they have an inroad to legal cannabis business now that we do that. Um, I have strong feelings about cannabis. Do I use it myself? A little bit. Mm. Uh, I, I found gel caps that help with my insomnia and okay. a few things like that. I, I like a low THC high CBD okay. uh, smoke every once in a while, but I am a total lightweight. I'm going to send you I wake some... up with my mouth on a bong. <laughs> I'm going to send you some of my um, Shuggies individual stick packs of sugar and agave syrup. They're five milligrams only. You oh, can fantastic. Carry them, carry them in your purse. You can use them anywhere. Um, I actually engineered it for women because when I was inventing the product, I knew a lot of women who like when girls night out, they'd go out and all the girls would have gummies. Right. Mm -hmm. And back then gummies were not well dosed. Right? right. So eight out, eight out of 10 girls would have a great time that night. 
two <laughs> would be in the bathroom sobbing yeah. about what their sisters did to him 25 years ago and how they needed to go to the ER, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I invented it for women about, you know, or, or people of 140 pounds body mass and five okay. milligrams is that number, right? Um, and it's taken years for people of saying to me, you need to make it 20, you need to make it 30 milligrams. And I'm like, no, that's not what this product is about. Oh. So I'm going to get you something. I'm going to send some over. Well, thank you. You, you bet. Um, I, I like the fact um, you do make it clear your mother was never busted and in her pursuit of the brownies. And she's often confused with Brownie Mary, who's a very big cultural figure in San Francisco too, but that's not your mom. Your mom is Meredy. Right. Uh, <laughs> you remember the news stories about Brownie Mary. I mean, they were just oh, everywhere. Of course. And people still have them confused to this day. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. Um, and it was it was funny while it was happening, probably not to Brownie Mary, unfortunately, but it, no. <laughs> it, it was funny while it was happening. It's funny now. Um, my mom never saw herself as a pioneer. I think she is starting to see herself in that light now. Mm-hmm. Um, she really had the first high volume cannabis edibles business in this area um, to operate at that scale in any case. And, and it definitely was a forerunner to, to some of the cannabis delivery models we have today. And so she was a trailblazer, but she didn't see her that, herself that way. She was operating within her community, trying to respond to the needs of her community at any given time and, um, and, and to just make her way and not get caught. So Brownie Mary kept getting busted. And there was a there was a period of time when they were both operating simultaneously and serving some of the same crowd in the Castro. And Brownie Mary got busted uh, for the first time. And even back then there was speculation that she was also being blamed for my mom's work. And so I think and it happened multiple times that I oh. think that what, uh, unfortunately for, for Brownie Mary, I think that one of the things that happened was that the, 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 the police thought they had their man, so to speak. <laughs> and meanwhile, my, my mom continued to slide under the radar. Yeah. They did not, they didn't look alike, but uh, people had them, people had them confused. And, you know, Brownie Mary was so, open about it she put up flyers oh she was unrepentant (laughs) oh totally she gave out her home address um i think she's passed away hasn't she yeah she yes she has a couple Um, five years ago or something i think yeah yeah uh but but they're all they're they're woven into the fabric your mom brownie mary woven into the fabric of that time and dennis i mean oh yeah for sure I mean, um, also getting back to something you said before about the black and brown communities and the um, incarceration, do you, are you doing any work with Andrew D'Angelo and Steve D'Angelo and the Last Prisoner Project? It's a great project if you're not in, involved in it. Angelo, um, Steve, um, you know, um, Andrew has been a guest on the show before, doing great work um, if you're at home. I'm listening familiar to with the organization, but I, I don't, uh, I have not worked them now you should look in it's great it just from a, a personal interest standpoint it's a last prisoner project andrew okay. d'angelo and steve both are really doing amazing work so shout out to An- uh, both of you guys for doing great work because the huge amount of black and brown people in this country who have been incarcerated because and then given horrible sentences like insane 
Um, it, it just, we need to rectify this. And it's certainly with people who have been in prison for many, many years. So if you're at home listening to this and you have not followed the Last Prisoner Project, go on Instagram, look at it, go on Facebook, look at it and give them donations. They need it because um, they're doing God's work, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I wanted to kind of wrap it up with you too, and then um, talk to you about what do you have a new project coming up? Anything new? <laughs> I, I am. Let's see. There are a couple of things in the works. We are working on developing a, a series adaptation of home baked it's it's been optioned by bad robot and, wow um, it's we'll see what happens it's in the like works. tales of the city is, we'll see yeah <laughs> I, I try to keep i try to keep my my feet firmly planted here so uh we'll see how it goes but it is exciting and exciting. i'm working on another another book this one is based on my great grandmother's alleged marriage to a ghost Okay. That's, that's a good one. A great one to start it's, with. I like that. Um, it's, it's out there. It has nothing whatsoever to do with cannabis. Okay. It's okay. <laughs> the ghost thing is enough for me. I like that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so I should let people at home know that um, Alia was uh, the winner of the golden poppy award and you were a finalist in the national book critics circle award. Well, congratulations on both of those. Great. Thank you feathers so much. In your cap. And um, my question, though, is, do you still have the original recipe? Of course. There you go. Yeah. Um, and I will be happy to share it with your listeners. If you'd like, I can uh, send it over and you can post it on the website. I'll put it up. Is that on Instagram okay with you? Sure. We would love to do that and put it up on Days and Infused and um, at sure. uh, That Shuggy's Feeling and at Papa Shuggy, which is my nom de plume on Instagram. Um, so... Where's the best place to get your book on um, Amazon probably right now? I would always advocate for shopping at your local independent bookstore. Like, they, like Apple? Uh, the Green Apple Books would be, yep. is, is my hometown shop. It's right around yep. the corner for me. But truly any any local independent bookstore either will have it in stock or be able to order it easily. It's available uh, as, as a hardcover now uh, or an ebook or an audiobook, which I read myself. And the paperback, which has a beautiful new cover and, and bonus photographs and more artwork and lots of other fun stuff is coming out um, today on 420. All right. Well, yeah, it is 420 today. This is coming out. The paperback is available. Look for it at a local bookstore. Green Apple Books was my go-to place on Clement Street as well. So please go out there and, and give them the business if you can. Um, and uh, I'd love to invite you to one of our House 420, that's H-A-U-S-420.com um, events. We have them, they're cannabis events for cannabis people, meaning you have to be an employee of the cannabis or be in the cannabis business to attend one of these events. They're low key, they're convivial, they're fun. And it's, we're trying, and I'm trying, cause I founded the whole thing is I'm trying to get the fun back into cannabis because um, corporate money is coming in in a big, mm -hmm. big, big way. And it's really starting to change the, the tenor and the way cannabis is being perceived and consumed. So you're welcome to come to House 420. I will put you on the list. They're always fun and they're always in inter interesting places. Thank you. You're welcome. And so 
If you're um, just tuning in at this point, you've missed a lot, so go back. Um, this is Alia Vols, and The Home Baked is her book, My Mom, Marijuana and the Stoning of San Francisco. Alia, thank you so, so much for being here. Thank you for being um, historical linchpin in the cannabis story and San Francisco story. I had a blast talking with you. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for being here. And, and uh, if you want to um, come back on the show with any other new books, I'd love to have you. And if you're at home, Look for her paperback version of the book in stores near you. Thanks for being here. Fantastic. Oh, that was really fun. Thank you. I, I appreciate the care you. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.